Okay, turn over to the book of Philippians this morning. We're back in the book of Philippians chapter 2. It's good to see Mr. and Mrs. Erder here. Uh, here visiting their son, John. And, okay, glad California cooperated with some good weather for them. Of course, we always have good weather out here in California, so usually, I should say. Unless there's the occasional flood, mudslide, fire, earthquake. But besides that, we do pretty good. Philippians chapter 2. I just want to read the two verses that we'll be looking at this morning. And it's kind of a continuation of last week. So we're, if you're kind of lost at the beginning here, I'm going to try to review a little bit and uh, catch you up to speed. But you can get the tape from last week as well. Philippians chapter 2. Let's look at verse 12 this morning. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only... But now much more in my absence. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do His good pleasure. Now, there's no doubt this morning when you woke up, a lot of things in our lives that we accomplish on a daily basis take some form of uh, energy. When you woke up, you hopefully... It took energy for you to get out of bed this morning. Some of you are saying, yeah, you don't know how much energy it took for me to get out of bed this morning, but I'm here by the grace of God. Um, and everything in life, no matter what it is that we accomplish, it takes energy. Um, you drove a vehicle here or you walked. Somehow you got into this building here this morning. That took energy. Um, and it, everything moves basically by virtue of energy. And, you know, that's true not only in the physical realm in which we live, but it's also true in the spiritual realm. And so we, we posed this question uh, last week about our sanctification and what Paul here is saying. And we asked the question, well, whose energy is it that sanctifies us? Whose energy is it that provokes a life of holiness? Whose energy is it that implies this and impels us to live a righteous life and to be fruitful in our Christian walk? Um, what energy is it that gives us spiritual progress? And as we covered that question, we looked at basically, because that's exactly what Paul is looking at here in these two verses. But we looked at two kind of opposite ends of the spectrum, you might say. We looked first, as you recall, those who historically have been called quietists. And what the quietists believe is basically God saves you. And in the progress that you receive after you're, you're saved is all God, 100%. You do absolutely nothing. As a matter of fact, if you try to do anything, you're probably getting in the way of God. And the, the name means exactly what it means. You just remain quiet and you allow God to do His work in your life. And, and so there's no energy expelled whatsoever by the believer, according to their view, as far as their sanctification. None at all. Just You just lay back and God works on you and He does whatever He wants. You yield. That's all you do. You die to yourself. You mortify yourself. And you put yourself on the altar. And after that's done, once you surrender, well then you're at a level of surrender that there's, there's, there's no more surrendering to do. And you just let God do its work. It's nothing about you at all. It's all about God. That's one view. The quietest viewpoint. There's also another group that we talked about the pietists. And they took the opposite view. That basically, they said that no to the spiritual progress is left, up by the, is left up to God. But they said, no, it's all energized by the believer. It's all on the believer, 100%. 
And they basically believe that we must devote and we must be committed, we must be diligent, and we must be, and, and that's the key. It's, it's spiritual discipline in the believer's life. And they put a lot of emphasis on that. And it takes all of our effort, 100% of our effort, to accomplish our sanctification. That's the other view. And if you just look at those two views in light of verse 12, you begin to read verse 12, and Paul says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. And then he says this, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. If you were to stop there, and that's all that you were to read about Paul, you would think, well, he's definitely the latter view, the pious. He believes that it's all you, because he says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And you might say, wow, see there, that's, that's what it says. But then you read the second half, verse 13 there, and it says, for it is God who works in you both to will and to do his good pleasure. And if you just take that verse by itself, well, then you might say, well, that's a quietist. That's, that's the quietist view. And see, Paul here is not trying to give off two different viewpoints. He's trying to give us a balance. But you notice one thing Paul never does is he, he doesn't try to take those two verses and push them together to make sense. Because what we concluded basically last week was that it's, not only 100% God, but it's also 100% us. God's not going to drag anybody into heaven kicking and screaming, no, I don't want to believe, I don't want to go to heaven. Come on, I'm sovereign and you're coming. You know, that, it's not going to happen that way. Somehow God takes those two viewpoints and he puts them together in his perfect sovereign plan and in his omniscience and he makes it work. And so verse 12 and verse 13 almost sound like they're saying two totally different things. But that's not the case. It's really not. In verse 12, he says, it's all you. In verse 13, he says, basically, it's all God. And he doesn't try to harmonize those two truths because they're both true. It takes all that we are and all that God is for our sanctification. And we talked a little bit last Weak about that paradox, that, 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 that strangeness in those two truths. How can both be the same? And we looked at, well, Jesus Christ was fully man. He was fully man when he was incarnate here in the flesh. He spoke with the voice of a man. He walked with the feet of a man. He did miracles with the hands of a man. He thought with the, the mind of a man. He saw with the eyes of a man. He felt... With the, with the feelings of a man, he heard with the ears of a man. And if you stop and you think, and yet he was fully man, and yet he was what? Fully God. That's a paradox. And we're not going that's, that's to resolve that in our own hearts, in our own minds. He was the God-man. And that, that union of those two truths together, you know, you, you'll go nuts if you try to figure it out. And so that, that paradox is throughout Scripture. Even here in Philippians, as we read the words of Paul, are they the words of Paul or are they the words of God? I'm sure they're the words of Paul. I'm sure Paul felt every you know, stroke of the pen as he wrote these. But they're also God's words. He wasn't just a robot sitting down, God told me to write this, now I will. You know, No, his feelings, you can feel and sense his passion in his letter to the Philippian church here. And so there's that paradox through all of Scripture. Salvation demands an act of the human will in which we respond to God and repent. And then we place our faith in the work of Christ. 
And yet it's God who chose us before the foundation of the world, the Bible says, and effected that salvation through His sovereign grace. You say, well, those two things don't make sense. No, they don't make sense to me either. But that's what the Word says. And that's why God is God and we're not. And you, if you can even take it a, a, a further step. And there's a lot of controversy in the area of the perseverance of the saints or our eternal security. And if, you know, it's the same thing, I believe, when we look at those two truths. We're eternally secure because we're, we are, we're basically held with Christ in the hand of God, by, by Christ in the hand of God. We're, we're eternally secure because God has so designed it that no one can bring an accusation against us. That's what the Bible says, because God won't hear it. Christ is there as our intermediary. He's in between us. He's our mediator. No one can condemn God's elect because it's God who justifies us. It is Christ that stands up for us. And yet, though it is all God's in terms of our security, you have to stop and you have to say, you know what, it's really all us in terms of our perseverance. And sometimes we get mixed up on these issues. The Bible says if we're not faithful to continue to the end, we will not inherit eternal life. That's very basic. It takes all of us and all of God with that kind of tension there to, to carry that out. Now, I kind of want to touch on this a little bit from a verse last week. We just touched on it. And I want you to turn over to 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 6. And look at verse 12 with me. 1 Timothy chapter 6. And let's just I'll read verse, verse 12. Um, fight the good fight of faith. This is Paul writing Timothy. He says there, Fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold of eternal life to which you were also called and confessed the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Now, what he's saying there, you are called unto that final feature of salvation. He's saying, lay hold of it. He's saying, pursue it. And you say, well, wait a minute. Are we, are we supposed to pursue that? I, I thought we were eternally secure. That's right. The Bible teaches eternal security. But it also teaches the responsibility of the perseverance of the saints. And see, sometimes we get those two truths mixed up and we want to make them one. We're back to the same paradox. The same two truths are true. Who wrote the book of Philippians? God and Paul. When you were saved, was it God or was it you? Was it all God or was it all of you committing yourself? And Jesus is the God-man. I mean, you can go through this over and over and over again. See, the, the guarantee of our eternal life is all in God's power and His ability to secure us. And it's all of our perseverance energized by the Spirit of God that He gives us within us that moves us onto that final, that final day when we are like Christ. And you have two things kind of going along side by side, two tracks, you might say. And Paul says to Timothy, look, you need to take hold of eternal life to which you were called. Take hold of it. He's telling him to do something. Back in verse 16 of the fourth chapter, Verse 15 says, Pay close attention to yourself and your teaching, Timothy. Persevere in these things. For as you do this, you will ensure salvation both for yourself and for those who hear you. 
I believe that the Christian is eternally secure, but I also can see eternal security even in Romans 8. Um, but I don't believe eternal security exists apart from our persevering in the faith. And that's a very important point to make because there's a lot of people that say, oh, they profess Christ and, you know, they prayed a prayer one day and then somebody told them they're saved and they go out the rest of their life thinking they're saved. They're not living the life of Christ. They're not following Christ in any way whatsoever. But because somebody told them they're eternally secure and they prayed that prayer in the back of that track and somehow that has some magical formula that, that secures them eternally, then they feel, well, they can go do whatever they want because somebody's told them all their sins are paid for. And, you know, there, there's lost as a duck, but they don't know it. And so we have to be careful here when we look at these doctrines that we truly understand what the Word is saying. See, true believers work out their salvation on the outside with continuity until the time that they're glorified. That's the perseverance of the saints. In Matthew 24, the Lord says, The one who endures to the end shall be saved. In Acts chapter 13, verse 43, it basically reads some other verses there. In verse 43, it says, Now when the meeting of the synagogue had broken up, many of the Jews and the God-fearing proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas, who, speaking to them, were urging them, listen to this, to continue in the grace of God. They were called to do that. In Acts chapter 14, verse 22, it says that Paul was strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith. And you say, well, you know, if you're genuinely saved, won't you continue in the faith? God will keep them from their side, but they must persevere. That's what we're called to do. And that's, that's a clear teaching in Scripture. We must persevere. That's, that's, that's our aspect of it. Now, God gives us the Holy Spirit and equips us to do that. But don't ever think you can just check out the time you're saved and then do whatever you want, and somehow uh, you're, you're a believer. See, from God's point of view, in relation to salvation, He holds us. From man's point of view, uh, there must be perseverance. You must continue. See, that's the problem when we say, you know, well, you know, I knew brother, brother so-and-so, you know, he used to come to church every day and he was saved when he was, you know, a teenager and boy, he was just a, a vibrant church member. And then all of a sudden he just left the faith. And now he doesn't have anything to do with God. And those examples are brought up over and over. See, that's proof that you can lose your security. That's proof that you can lose your salvation. No, that's proof that he didn't ever have it because he didn't persevere. He didn't hold up his end. Very clear. And so it takes both of those, God and us, and that's why the Bible constantly emphasizes that we should be overcomers, that we should, that we should uh, strive to do what God has called us to do. In Romans chapter 2, verse 7, it says, To those who by perseverance in doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality, God gives eternal life. Well, who does God give eternal life to? Those who persevere. It's very clear. In other words, God gives eternal life to those who persevere. So you believe that salvation, the salvation goes in, then you work that salvation out. That's what we're called to do as believers. Persevering all the way to the end. Remember when we went through Colossians in verse uh, 23, uh, basically it, saves, it says that you're saved if you indeed continue in the faith, firmly established and steadfast, and not moved away from the hope of the gospel. Even the writer of Hebrews discusses this issue frequently. 
In Hebrews chapter 3, verse 14, he says, We have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast to the beginning of our assurance, firm until the end. And perhaps even in chapter 10 of Hebrews, verse 38, he says, But my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not those who shrink back, he says, but back to destruction, but of those who have faith to the persevering of the soul. See, he's saying, basically what Paul is saying in Philippians is, you know what, get on the outside, what's already done on the inside? God has saved us. If we've trusted Him, if we've repented of our sins and we've come to Christ, He's saved us. That's the transforming of the heart. He's given us a new heart. And now he says, you know what? Allow that to overflow into your behavior. Because if it doesn't, there's no evidence that you were ever saved in the first place. Even in chapter 3, look over in, in Philippians chapter 3. Jump ahead here a couple weeks. <clears throat> Philippians chapter 3. And look at verse uh, 7 to 12. Paul says, But what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. Yet indeed I also count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Jesus Christ my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having in my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. Verse 10, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings being conformed to His death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Any means, he says. Verse 12, not that I have already obtained this, or I'm already perfected, but what's he say? He says he presses on. He says, I press on that I might lay hold may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. Brethren, I do not uh, count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. That's the call to us as believers. We're trying to lay hold of something for which God has laid hold of already for us. That's strange, but that's what it says. We're trying to attain what God gave us. But it points again to our sanctification and our salvation and all of its elements. You say, well, that doesn't make any sense. You're right, it doesn't, but that's what it says. That's what, it, that's what Paul is teaching. What we need to understand, I think, in our Christian walk is that it takes 100% of us to do what God has called us to do. 100% of our effort. You can't just lay back and be a lazy believer and think God's going to somehow miraculously transform you. That's not the call that we've received. We've received a call to persevere, to press on, to give it our very best. And when that happens, when anything good happens, who gets the credit? Not us. <laughs> he does. So then in verse 13 in, in, in Philippians 3, there he says, I do not regard myself as laying hold of it yet. See, in other words, the full salvation, as we've talked about last week, um, hasn't 
come yet. You know, our salvation is past, present, and future. We were saved. God chose us before the foundation of the world. And then there came a point in time in the presence. We're being saved every day. That's why Christ is in heaven as our mediator, forgiving our sins continuously. He's paid the price. And then even in the future, we'll be like Him in glory. But He says, basically, what's on the inside needs to be worked out. Um, now, I'm not saying it's all us. That's not what I'm saying, and I, I know you understand that, hopefully. But it is a combination of the two. Over in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 10, let me just read this for you. Paul says, By the grace of God, I am what I am. In other words, he's speaking spiritually here. Uh, speaking not only about his salvation, but his spiritual development and everything. He says, By the grace of God, I am what I am at this moment as a Christian as a teacher of God's truth, as a called apostle, I am what I am by God's grace. And His grace toward me did not prove useless. God has made me what I am. Now that would sound at first like he was a quietist. That he was one of these guys who said, oh, it's all God. But then he says, a little later he says, but I labored even more than all of them. In other words, there's a reality that God calls us to that takes, takes all of our effort to obtain this. And he closes those section of verses there in, in 1 Corinthians. He says, Yet not I, but the, the grace of God with me. And that's that constant bouncing back and forth in our spiritual walk. We looked at Galatians chapter uh, 2, verse 20. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. You know, that's a favorite verse of the quietists. They say, see, you just got to give up and, and, and let go. But then a little later on, he says, in the life which I now live, Paul says, in the flesh I live, the emphasis on him doing all the work, by faith in the Son of God who loved me and delivered himself up for me. So in the first half of those verses in Galatians 2.20, he basically said, I died and Christ lives. And then the second half, he says, well, I live because Christ is living in me. Constantly, it bounces back and forth. And I, I just want us to understand that. And I think that there's, there's, a, there's a good illustration of this, even in the Old Testament. And you can turn there if you want in Exodus 14. Just kind of re remind you of, of what we're looking at back there in Exodus 14. Because it's not something just in the New Testament. But um, Pharaoh's army, you recall, is, 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 is behind him and the Red Sea is blocking his path, Moses. Um, and, and Pharaoh's desire, basically, was to destroy the children of Israel, and uh, the Red Sea will, will help accomplish that, prove their drowning, if they move into it. And so Moses was, was so confident, if you look at that, that text there, in verse 13 uh, especially, though he was in a trap, although Pharaoh thought he had him trapped, he was confident the Lord would give him victory, and that the people of God would, would, would be victorious. And uh, uh, in verse 13 of Exodus 14, he shouts to the people. And look at what he says. He says, don't be afraid. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. Now you stop and you say, well, that's good advice. That's it's okay. Well, that's great faith, but I think it's bad advice, to be honest with you. Uh, Moses only got a half right there. Um, good for that kind of faith, 
that God will deliver you, but it was bad advice because look immediately what God shot back at Moses from heaven. He says, why are you crying unto me? He said, speak to the children of Israel and tell them to what? Go forward. You don't just stand there saying, I'm going to trust God. He's going to work everything out. No, God says, you know what? You have to be moving. Move forward in faith. It's not just stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. It's what? Go forward and see the salvation of the Lord. And that's what we're called to do in our Christian walk. See, we've got too many believers standing around with their hands in their pockets going, yep, just trusting God, just trusting God. And nothing's getting done. And there's a lost and dying world out there that's on a quick track to, to hell. And, and God has given us a responsibility to share that message. It's like having the cure for cancer and knowing somebody that has cancer and saying, ah, you know, I just don't feel led to share it with them today. Maybe next week if they're still around. I mean, you know, that's, that's horrible to say that, but that's so true. Because, you know, you stop and you think about it, cancer takes you out of this life physically. But you know what? If you die in your sin and you have not trusted the Lord Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you're not just talking, you know, about dying. Physically, you're talking about dying spiritually. You're talking about an eternity removed from the presence of God in a place called hell where there's torment and, and, and just the most horrible place that you can imagine. It's ten times worse than that. And that's a reality. That's what the Bible says. And yet we go through our lives every day as if hell doesn't exist and as if people aren't going there every day. Point one here in verse 12 is the Christian is to work out our salvation. And in verse 13, he says it's because God is working in us. We don't just stand around and say, well, let's see God work. That's not what we're called to do. And so he says there, work out your salvation in verse 12. And, you know, that's a, that's a command. And it's, it's a continuing forceful command. It doesn't mean, well, work it for a while and see if, it, see if it's working for you or not. No, it's, 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 it's saying continually work out your salvation. He's not saying work up your salvation or work for your salvation or work in your salvation. He's saying allow your salvation to work itself out through your life. We know we can't work for our salvation because salvation is a gift of grace, not of what? Not of works. So Paul would not be saying, oh yeah, work for your salvation. That's not what he's saying there. You're not working for it. You're not working to improve it, at it to improve it. You're not working it up. You're simply working it out. And that's called sanctification. That's, that's called bringing our behavior in line with our position in Christ. Now you notice there in that verse in Philippians 2, it doesn't say work on your neighbor's salvation, does it? <laughs> doesn't say that. It says pretty clearly, work out your own salvation. You be concerned with yourself. God will be concerned with your neighbor. You, you make sure that you're where you need to be with the Lord first. And what it has in the original language, it really means work out by your own means without me, apart from me, without my help. From anybody's help. You make sure you work that out. And the stress is 
and the language is on the individuality of the command. It's not to a group of people, it's to an individual. We talked about last week how this doesn't mean you know we're saving ourselves. It means basically that we're becoming more like Christ, because our, our our future dimension of salvation is still still not there. None of us. I don't see anybody here glorified this morning. You know, I mean, if you are stand up and walk through a wall or something, that would be a neat thing to see. But none of us are yet. Why? Because our salvation is not totally totally complete yet. It is in the mind of God because God isn't limited to time in space. But we are. And so we need to work out that salvation. And we need to make sure that we're, we're boxing and that we're, we're warring and running, as Paul says. We're running the race with endurance. That's what we're called to do. One commentary I was reading quoted this, uh, this uh, man. It, it was a basically just a incredible uh, theological and, and just impacted men's lives spiritually. And uh, he had been on the mission field. And, and one night, him and his colleague were on the mission field and they were living in a very dilapidated facility. They just didn't, it wasn't, wasn't nice at all. It was really bad. And, and uh, you know, they had basically limited bedding, little sheet that they were over, but they were freezing. And it was hard to sleep because it was so cold. And it, the colleague woke up only to see his colleague sitting in the corner of his bed with his Bible open, with this little wick of a candle, reading the Scriptures. And his colleague asked him, said, well, you know, how can you, I mean, aren't you freezing me? Why are you up? He goes, well, I couldn't sleep. And here's what he said. I felt something was wrong in my relation to the Lord. So I'm reading through the entire New Testament to check all of the commands to me in case I have unwittingly violated any of them. When's the last time you did that? When's the last time you obeyed the conviction of the Lord like that? Man, you know, that's not necessarily a let go and let God kind of attitude, is it? He was so concerned about his spiritual life that he propped himself up in the freezing of this corner of this little bed with a candle and was reading through the entire New Testament just to make sure that he was following what God commands us to do. It was Paul that said, I labored more abundantly than them all. And yes, it's by the grace of God, but it's also by our maximum effort that we put into this thing. And I just want to start on these five things that I want to look at because it kind of turns it around to be a little more practical. And, and there's some very practical issues here that Paul wants us to see. And in verse 12 is, is the first, in Philippians 2, is the first practical thing. There's, there's five things that we need to understand personally that's going to help us work out our salvation if we understand these things more fully. And we'll be able to do it with real faithfulness and diligence. And the number one thing that we need to understand is understand who our example is. Understand our example. Look at verse 12. He says, therefore, or some translations say, so then. Well, what does that mean? That means basically you've got to jump back and see what he just said. He's saying basically, in light of what I just told you, and then he goes on with his, his, his thinking, with his writing there. And so he's pulling back those two little, those little words there, so, then, and he's saying, go back, or therefore, and go back and see what I just explained to you. 
Well, what did he just explain? We find Jesus Christ back in verse 5. 5 to 11. He's introduced to the model of humility. He's introduced as the model of obedience. He's introduced as the model of someone who submits to those in authority over him. It was for, 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 for Jesus Christ who he didn't hold back being equal with God. It was Jesus Christ in verse 7 who says that he emptied himself, who became a bondservant. It was Jesus Christ in verse 8, if you look at that, who humbled himself, even to the point of dying on a cross. And then we remember it was there that it was it was because of that that Jesus Christ was thereby exalted by God. And we followed the steps down in his humiliation, and then we followed the steps back up in his exaltation. It was Jesus Christ who was given a name which is above every name. And we saw that name not to be Jesus. There's a lot of people named Jesus. That's not the name which is above every name. It's the name Lord. That sovereign name. And you see, it's Jesus Christ who is our model. And so what he's saying is, so then work out your salvation. Well, what do you mean, so then? As you have seen the example of, a, of, a, of what a saved person is to be like in the life of Christ, as we just covered, then you, you'll be obedient to that. You'll be like him. In the, in the, in the, the life that he was, uh, the fact that he was obedient, then you'll be obedient. The fact that he was humble, then you'll be humble. That's what Paul is trying to point us to. So Paul is saying here, since Jesus Christ gave you an example of humility and of obedience, and he showed you what submission is, since Christ gave you the path to exaltation, we're to follow his pattern. That's what we're called to do. We're called to be like him. You say, well, yeah, I know that. We know a lot of things, but we fail not to practice a lot of things. You know, that's, that's why Paul, when he was speaking to the Galatians, he said that he was literally in pain until Christ was formed in them. That's why you see the Apostle John saying, you know what? If you say you abide in Christ, you ought to walk as what? He walks. You ought to follow his example. And so here he says, so then, if you've seen Christ work out your own, own salvation, so that in the process you desire and, 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 and kind of uh, pursue Christ's likeness. That's the first thing. Understand who our example is. It's Christ. The second thing is understand that you're loved. Understand that you're loved. That's what he says there in verse 12. He says, therefore, so then, my beloved. You know, it's interesting how God just kind of interjects these little things here. And, and sometimes, you know what, they put our, our hearts at ease. Uh, there was obviously a patience in Paul's heart that was reflected in this statement. And that was a reflection of the patience God has toward us. Uh, there was a mercy and a grace in his heart as a pastor. Paul, as he's reading this, and as an apostle, as he's writing this, toward the people that he loved. And served, and, and, and he even called them his children in the faith. And you know what? That patient heart was a representative, was representative of God's patience toward us. There was mercy in Paul, and that was the mercy of Christ. There was grace in Paul, that was the grace of Christ. And so he says to them, My beloved. 
You know what he's saying? He's basically saying, you know what? There's some space in our relationship. Have you ever been in a relationship where there's no space? What do you mean by space? I mean space for your failure. <laughs> space for your failure. You think of the Philippian church, you had these two individuals, Euodia and Syntech, they were fighting with one another. There was some obvious pride in the Philippian church, or else he wouldn't have spoken about humility so strongly to him in this letter. There was some discord there and some disunity. But in all of that, Paul says, My beloved, my beloved, Not just here, but even back in verse 8 of chapter 1, he says, I long for you with the affection of Jesus Christ. And that love he has in their heart. He says the same thing over in Philippians 4.1. Therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long for. It's a deep affection that he has. And it reflects the heart of God and the heart of Paul. Aren't you happy as a believer that you have, as you work out your own salvation, you have some space around you? Uh, aren't you happy that you're loved by God and within the framework of that love there's forgiveness and there's mercy and there's grace and there's even restoration? I thank God every day I don't serve the kind of God that some of the the pagan deities represent. Aren't you glad you don't have to live a life under bondage of fear that somehow God is going to get back at you? If you just fail in one little area? Understand this morning that you are loved by God with a love that far supersedes any human love. This is the loving, kind of passionate heart that Paul has. And he says, you know what? I care about you. And I understand. And you know what? There's some room for failure in our relationship. And he reflects the life of Christ. You know, that's one thing that's, that's needed in human relationships is room for failure. You know, there's some people that, 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 that don't have any space. They won't give you an inch. You do something wrong and, you know, it's a guillotine for you. Forget it. They cut you off quicker than anything. And, and that's not right. It's not Christ-like. And we need to keep that in perspective. And so he says, you know, first of all there, understand your model, Christ. Secondly, understand that you're loved. Thirdly, understand the place of obedience. Understand the place of obedience. Because he says there, so then, my beloved, or therefore, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. Just as you have always obeyed. He, he really identifies a pattern of conduct here in their lives. Um, Ephesians 2.10 uh, is, is where he says that God has ordained us to walk in good works. He's ordained us. Uh, the Christian life, if you boil it down to you know, just a sentence, is basically a life of obedience. That's what we're called to do. By the way, the, the word there, just as you've always obeyed, um, in the Greek, it's, it's a verb, obviously, and it, and it basically, it's made up of two words. 
and it's hupa kuo. And it basically means this. We get the word acoustics from the second half of that, and, and the, the little preposition uh, H-U-P in front of that means to put under, or having put yourself under. So it speaks basically of submitting yourself to something that you've heard. And he's saying basically that you have always had this attitude. That's what he's saying then. And you can go back to the 16th chapter of the book of Acts when you see um, Paul came to the region of Philippi from the very beginning and he preached the gospel to Lydia. And what happened? Lydia listened. She not only listened, but she believed. And it says the Lord opened her heart. And a little later on, you remember when they were in jail and uh, uh, in Acts there and, and the gospel was presented to the Philippian jailer and his entire household. It says they too listened and what? They too believed once again. See, in both cases, as that of the church of Philippi here was being born, there was obedience. That's, that's the bottom line of the gospel. They obeyed the word that they heard. What is the word of the gospel? word of the gospel is believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. That's the word of the gospel. The word of the gospel comes and says, you know what? Turn from your sin and turn to Christ. Stop following yourself and follow Jesus Christ. And, and I want you to understand this morning that that's a command. That's not a suggestion. That's, that's a command. But you know what? Today with our user-friendly evangelism and all this other stuff that goes on, we, we don't... Think of it as such. The gospel is a command to us. We forget that. Believe on the Lord Jesus is, is an imperative command. When the Father said, this is my beloved Son, hear Him, He was serious. He didn't say, this is my beloved Son, you know, if you want to, you can. You know, I don't want to offend you or anything, but you might want to just give a little bit of consideration to Him. Because He is God, and He will be your Savior. No, He didn't say that. See, God commands us to hear the world, hear the word of Christ. And He commands the world to hear Christ. Christ commands the world to believe. And you know what? You, you see the apostles and the preachers command the world to believe on Christ so that any moment of salvation is a moment of obedience to a command. That's the first step in somebody's salvation is, is the step of obedience. Believe, repent, follow me. That's what Christ said. When Paul was calling the Gentiles in Romans 1.5, he said he's calling them to, in, to the obedience of faith. See, faith is an act of obeying a command to, to repent and believe. And I think that that's, that's so important for us to understand. But Paul says here that you have always obeyed. You know, sometimes your obedience is sporadic. There are times of disobedience in all of our lives. And that's when you fall back on the second point I just said, boy, I'm loved. You know, that's good. You know. But nonetheless, our, our, our spiritual life is characterized by obedience. In 2 Thessalonians 1.8, uh, Paul's speaking here about the, the, the judgment that will come against the ungodly when Jesus returns from heavy, heaven and his mighty angels 
in flaming fire, he says that. And then Paul says, he will deal out retribution to those who do not know God, and then listen to this, and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, receiving Christ is an act of obedience to a divine command. And in that sense, uh, you're always, uh, you might say, at salvation, there's always an acknowledging of Jesus as Lord, as we talked about a couple weeks ago. You can't come to Jesus, well, I'm going to come to you just as Savior today, and then maybe two weeks from now I'll make you Lord. No, it doesn't work that way. He is Lord. You don't make Jesus Lord. And so when we get saved, we're submitting to that command. We're submitting to His authority in our life. And that initiates the life of obedience that we're talking about. In 2 Thessalonians 3.14, it says, If anyone does not obey our instruction, and Paul's talking to believers here, and so we understand that uh, though we are saved by an act of obedience into a life of obedience, it's possible for us to disobedient, be, be disobedient. But he goes on there. He says, if anyone does not obey our instruction, ju he, he just wants us to understand that, that that instruction is there for our obedience. And so he says, just as you have always obeyed back in Philippians, I want you to do more uh, next time. I always want you to obey more. There's always room for improvement. Kind of what he's saying. So salvation is a command, and all of obedience is, is really spelled out for us in Scripture as a series of commands. And I think that that's, that's just kind of an important point to make so that the next time you go out and, you know, what, what do we call it when we go out and we evangelize? We call it sharing our faith, don't we? When's the last time you went out and commanded people to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ? Wow. Pretty bold. But that's what we're called to do. And so we're to work out our salvation. We're to, work, to understand our example, understand that we're loved, understand that we're called to obedience. Fourthly, we're called to understand our personal resources and responsibility. Um, you know, as sinners, or I'll make this personal, as a sinner, I always try to blame other people for my problems. That's just the way it is. Everybody does that, okay? We try to justify ourselves. And so Paul here, back in, in Philippians, he reminds us uh, very clearly that, you know what, uh, this thing shouldn't be. He says, so then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. In other words, he says, you know what, when I was with you guys, I saw a pattern of obedience, and that pleased me. Just because I'm gone... I hope that that pattern of obedience is still there, and even more so. See, the, the assumption here is that they need to do it on their own. And remember, the, the command is work out your own salvation. And what Paul is telling them, you know what? You don't need me. That's what he's telling them. You don't need me to babysit you you, you can obey. You can grow in the Lord. That's, that's what he's literally telling them. Even if I'm not around. And you stop and you think of some of the, the ways that they put Paul, kind of built them up in his own eyes. I mean, even the Corinthians church, I mean, they were going around starting little groups. You know, I'm of Apollos. I'm of Paul. I'm of this. I'm of that. And so they lifted Paul up on this pedestal. And I think that he felt a little awkward there. 
And see, sometimes in our own spiritual walks, sometimes we become so dependent on, you know, what's on the top ten of the Christian reading list or, you know, uh, what Bible studies we go to or whatever, um, that if you stripped all those things away, then that's an excuse for us to kind of fail spiritually. As a matter of fact, you hear it all the time, you know. Well, so-and-so is not a very strong Christian, you know. But after all, look at the church they're in. Or so-and-so is not a very strong Christian, but, you know, they don't get good teaching. Or, you know, so-and-so has a lot of sin in their life, but, you know, look at, the, you know, they haven't been exposed to the good books that I've been exposed to in my education or whatever. And somehow we make excuse for people's spiritual downfall because of maybe something has to do with their surroundings. And, and Paul is saying that's not the case. Paul is saying basically whether I'm there or not, you need to continue to do what God has called you to do. You need to obey Him. And so many times I think we get caught up in our activity schedules are such that unless we're, you know, our schedules are filled with every possible spiritual input, which is not a bad thing, but if you're relying on those things to, um, you know, maintain you spiritually, you're going to fall way short. Coming to church once a week is not going to maintain you spiritually. There's no way. I mean, you could have the best pastor in the world here. Not that you don't, but... You know, I, I'm just saying that, you know. But, I mean, you can have a, a wonderful man of God teaching every week. I mean, somebody that we would just be in awe of. And you know what? It wouldn't be good enough to come once a week. That's not going to maintain your spiritual growth. Coming on a Wednesday night is not going to maintain your spiritual growth. Coming on a Thursday morning is not going to maintain your spiritual growth. Or a Tuesday night or whatever. Why? Because it, the, the verse here says, work out your own salvation. That's up to you. See, so many times we have the attitude about churches that we come here to get a shot in the arm. Help me get through the week, Pastor. I hope you have some music that lifts me up this morning because if you don't, I don't know if I'll make it through Monday. And you know, about Tuesday, you're dragging again because you're not feeding yourself. You're not in the Word. You're not studying on your own. I mean, you know, to be real honest, that's one reason why I felt God calling me into ministry because I thought, you know what? God, I don't know why you're putting this call on, on me but because it goes totally against every... Everything in my personality, because I'm basically a very shy person. It's hard for me to get up in front of people and do this. And so, you know, why are you calling me to do this? And, you know, as I look back, it's almost like it was a safeguard. You know what? If you have to get up every week and you have to teach something, hopefully you have enough pride to realize that you're going to have to do some work. You're going to have to study and you're going to have to somehow put together something. So that you don't get up there and just, ah, uh, let's see, I don't know what I'm going to talk about this morning. Let's, you know, go here. Uh, you know, we're not going to do that. And so what's that do? That helps me maintain my own spiritual growth. Because I have to do it. And to be honest with you, you know what? If I didn't have to do it, I can't sit here this morning and say I would. <laughs> I really can't. Because you know what? I love to study God's Word and stuff, but you know what? It's also a burden. Because I don't have a quick mind. I'm not one of these guys that, okay, pastor, you know, da -da 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 -da, this verse over there, you know, sometimes I don't even have a clue what you're talking about. I just go, yeah, yeah, okay, you know, let's see, what are they talking about? I don't remember this guy's name or whatever. Now, I'm good at resourcing. I can go back to my office and find the answer. But I, I'm not the kind of guy that's just real quick on my feet. And so, you know, I need all the help I can get. And so, by God calling me in the ministry, you know, he made me do something that I don't know if I would do otherwise. And, and sometimes that's the kind of emphasis we need. But, but he says here basically that we need to make sure that, that we're doing what he wants us to do. 
not because of our environment, but we're, we're putting forth that effort that he calls us to put forth. And it's not just because of our surroundings. It's up to us personally. We need to dig it out. We need to go into the Word of God by ourselves and see what God has for us. That's what we're all called to do. It doesn't matter whether you're an elder or a pastor or just you know, anybody. It doesn't make any difference. That's the call that he's put us. We're all on a level playing field that way. The last thing, quickly, is I want you to understand the consequences of sin. And he says there at the end of verse 12, he says, Work out your own salvation. And then he says, With fear and trembling. And he wants us to understand, yeah, you know what? There's space in my relationship with you for failure and to be forgiven and to be loved. But you also must understand that, you know what? There's a consequence to sin. You cannot sin, be one of God's children and sin and just get away with it. He doesn't just turn his eye the other way and say, oh, okay, I didn't see that. Uh, that word fear is the, the word we get phobia from. And the word trembling is the word we get trauma from. And, and it literally is saying you know what, work out your salvation with fear, with, a, with a, uh, a reverence, and with a literal shaking is what he's saying. When you, con when you contemplate uh, offending God by sinning. And you know what, that's the proper reaction. Fear basically means godly all. And, and it grows out of a recognition of our weakness and the power of temptation. See, you know what, there's no, nobody in this room that can say, you know what, I don't, I don't deal with temptation anymore. I'm beyond that. You know what, we all deal with temptation every day. We all deal with our own weaknesses and the power of sin and the world we live in. And you know what, we need to have the healthy respect for that. You know, I know sometimes that, you know, I, I, I've talked to men about things and, and, you know, sometimes I'll say, how can you watch that? And that not affect what you're thinking. Because I don't know about you, but, you know, I can watch a show or something and, you know, if there's some sexual content in that thing, you know, my mind goes nuts. It's just a little bit of that. And I'm thinking, how could you constantly, why would you constantly expose your mind to that stuff? See, and it's almost like you're saying, well, that doesn't affect me. I'm above that. And you know what? They're this close to a fall. I guarantee it. See, that's why so many times, and especially in Christian ministry, you know, people are so taken back when a pastor falls in a moral failure and they're going, ah, oh, well, we never knew. Well, no, you didn't know. Anybody can act. Anybody can get in front of people and smile and speak and do all this stuff. That has nothing to do with their walk with the Lord. You know, it's, it's really coming before a holy God and saying, God, you know what? Show me my own inadequacy. Show me where I fall short. Show me the consequence of sin in my life. You know, one thing that I do sometimes in, well, in my office, if you go in my office, I have pictures of my grandkids, like around my computer, and, you know, just right there, a picture of my wife on the wall. Why? Because, you know what? I'm here by myself a lot. And, you know what? There's a lot of temptation in a lot of different areas. And I'm thinking, you know what, if I look at something and then I see that little face of Sophia or Mason, I'm thinking, what would I tell them? What would I tell them? What would I tell my daughter? For a moment of pleasure, a second of pleasure, wash the whole thing down the drain? That's, that's too big of a price 
for anybody to pay. It doesn't matter what it is. And that's the kind of attitude that we need to have when it comes to the consequence of sin. In closing, I just want us to remember that, you know what? God is a very gracious God. He's very merciful to us. And there's never, ever a time when it's too late to come before Him in humility and say, you know what, God? I don't know. I don't know for sure if I am saved. Nothing wrong with that. And you go before a holy God and you, you look at your life and you say, you know what? I'm not as good as I'm supposed to be. None of us are. Because the Bible says we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And that's why we need a Savior. And that's, that's the faith and the trust that he, he, he wants us to have in Him. That He's a God not just going to squash us like a bug, but He's there reaching out and He hung on Calvary with His arms outstretched as a picture of His love for us. And He wants us so much to put our faith and our trust in Him. And He equips us to do that. He gives us all the tools. Working at our salvation is hard. It's hard for me anyway. And you know what? Failure is usually very, very possible in a lot of different areas. But I just thank God that I don't have a fear in my life that one day I'll be doomed or I don't have a fear in my life of eternal torment because I know that God has set me apart unto Himself. Not because of who I am but because of who He is. And if it was up to me to trust in myself, beloved, I'd be as lost as a duck out of water. You know, I'd just be gone. But it's by the grace of God that we can come to Him afresh each and every day. And He can do that work in our lives. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, we thank You this morning.